Uh, in the late 90s, I made a commitment to uphold purity alongside fellow teenagers at my church. Now, I'm not going to have you raise hands if you did that before, uh, but I, we made this pledge to reserve sex until marriage. And uh, part of that pledge, we received a purity ring as a symbol of that promise. And that was what we commonly now refer to as a time in the Christian subculture called purity culture. And perhaps you too had similar experiences. Um, sometimes this included talks at your church or at your school reminiscent of Coach Carr from Mean Girls, right, where he just like, don't have sex or get pregnant or you'll die. Like that kind of like, this is like, it's a very scary thing. It's just exaggerated uh, warnings about the consequences of sex. And here's the deal. I think that intention was good. I think it was valid, but the problem with that was that purity became strictly about avoiding premarital sex. But biblical purity is bigger. It's more important than what you may or may not do with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. And so we're going to be in Ephesians 4 today, 17 through 32. And what we're going to see that today is about purity. That purity is about living lives consistent with our calling as Christians, and how we live affects the overall health of the body of Christ. So this is part two of, part, of two parts. Last week we talked about part one, about the, that the standards for the church, unity is the first one. Today the second standard of the church is purity. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Ephesians 4. And what I want us to take away today is I want us to realize the importance of this, that we need to leave our old lives of impurity behind and live new lives of purity consistent with our identity in Christ. And so purity involves changes from us, three particular changes. Purity involves first a change of thinking, a change in our thinking. Purity also involves a change in identity, and lastly, a change in motivation. So the three changes are thinking, identity, and motivation. So we're going to uh, jump past the reading of Scripture. We're just going to jump right in here. So purity involves a change in thinking. Let's look at Ephesians 4, 17 through 21. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul's referring to Gentiles as pagans, non-Christians. In the futility of their minds, they were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. If we're to live pure lives, we need to change the way we think. Have you ever had a moment where you had the ch that your thinking changed? I'll give you a, a simple example. Have you ever seen a Christmas story? Has anybody ever seen a Christmas story in a movie where Ralphie gets the BB gun? And not just any BB gun, by the way. All right, does anybody remember what BB gun he gets? Red Rider, BB gun. When I was young, 
I thought the dad in that movie was mean and kind of scary until I became a dad. <laughs> when I became a dad, I was like, that's a, that dad's actually a pretty good dad. Like, you know, like, I've been there. Maybe I'm not, like, fighting with the furnace, but I definitely have fought with, like, my HVAC system. I've been annoyed that it trips off for no reason. That dad is actually a pretty good dad. See, when I grew up, my thinking changed. And Paul's already challenged us to grow up in Ephesians 4. He's already told us to become more mature. He says, to, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that, why does he say to do that? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful, deceitful schemes. Derwin Gray, who's one of my favorite pastors, he's an African-American pastor in the Charlotte area, he always says this. He says, the scene of the crime is in your mind. What he's saying is, how we think influences how we live. Thinking leads to action. So Jesus says this thing in John chapter 8, 32. He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And shortly after, he says this, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. God is the source of truth. And his word, the Bible, is the truth that sets you free. And God's word points to God's Son, Jesus. And if Jesus sets you free, you are free indeed. Which is a good reminder, right, that why does he have to emphasize that we're free indeed, that the Son will set you free, and if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed? It's because you can know the truth, backwards, forwards, upside down, just like the devil does. The devil knows all the truth about the Bible. He's heard it preached thousands of years, and it makes a lick of difference. But that it's when the Son sets you free, you are actually free. True freedom comes when we're set free by Jesus. So the truth is not a concept, but a person. Unless you're connected to that person, you aren't free. And we'll continue in the mindset of the old life. doesn't matter how much Bible you know. If you're not connected to the Son, you're not free. So the Ephesian Christians, I said they're Gentiles. We've, we've learned this from the beginning. And prior to when God saved them, they thought just like the, their other Gentile neighbors. So Paul starts off by saying, don't go back to thinking the way you did before. Because that will lead you to living the way you did before. And that's not freedom, that's bondage. Instead, think and live in the way you learned Christ. In the truth that is in him, think and live in freedom. And we've, we've said this a number of times, and this is part of our five-year vision as a reminder that there is a real battle going on for the hearts and minds of people in our region, but there's a real battle going on for your mind as well. The dark powers of Satan and hell want you to keep thinking a certain way, to keep you imprisoned. But if the Son has set you free, live as free. Don't go back thinking that way. 
Don't go backwards to the futility of mind. Move forward in freedom. The Greek word for futility that Paul uses means vanity, emptiness, unreality, purposefulness, sorry, purposelessness, ineffectiveness, instability. If you go back to vain, empty, purposeless, unstable ways of thinking, Paul says, your understanding will be darkened. You'll be alienated from God. And you notice he's used the word ignorance. He means you'll be alienated from God and not even know it. Just like those who aren't Christians. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, the Son has not set you free. You're still thinking this way. You're in many ways ignorant and don't even know it. You don't even know you're alienated from God. Gentiles, pagans, or non-Christians think and live this way, Paul says, because of their hard hearts. Hardness of heart is a spiritual condition where someone is persistently unresponsive and stubborn toward God, and because of that, they reject the truth of his word and they're hostile towards it. So where we really see this play out is in Exodus. If you have a church background, you may remember the story of Exodus where Pharaoh hardened his heart. He rejected God's truth that came through Moses. He was even hostile towards it, right? There's times where he freaks out at Moses. He gets really angry. He hardened his heart. He was persistently unresponsive, persistently stubborn towards God, so it made him reject the truth of God's word and made him hostile towards it. So in Romans 1, Paul writes that God's wrath is on those who suppress the truth. That's 118. And they become, here he uses the word again, futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were Darkened. That's in verse 21. So he says, listen to this. In his wrath, God gave them up to their passions. That's what he says in verse 26 and 28 of Romans 1. In other words, God gave them what they wanted. We often think about God's wrath on sin and impurity as something future in hell after we die, or on judgment day. But the most common way God pours out his wrath in this life is to give people what their hard hearts want. If we have hard hearts, if we live lives that reflect a spiritual condition where we're persistently unresponsive, persistently stubborn towards God's word, God will give us what we want. If you want money, for example, and you persistently ignore, and maybe you're even hostile towards 
God's commandments around money, about generosity and stewardship, God will give you what you want. And you'll become greedy and never content. If you want control over others and stubbornly ignore the Bible's reminders that only God is ultimately in control of somebody else's life, what will happen is you'll become easily angered and irritated when those outside of your control refuse to be in it. If you make life all about your kids and stubbornly reject God's commands to put him, not family, first, you'll smother your kids and find out later that they resented you for it. And ironically, what happens in these moments is we often blame God for these consequences. My kids don't love me anymore. I gave them everything. Thanks a lot, God. God, I'm never satisfied. Your word says I can be content. I can do all things through Christ who's given me strength. But I'm still lack contentment. Thanks a lot, God. But in reality, God, what he did, he just gave us what we wanted. You want money and not me? Have it. You want sex and you don't want to do it my way? Have it. Go ahead. God loves you enough to give you what you want. But that's also him pouring out his wrath on you and saying, these are the consequences. So Paul says, avoid thinking the way you did before Christ. Because hard hearts make us, verse 19 says, callous towards sensuality. Sensuality is undisciplined behavior, especially in our sexuality. You may know people like that who are calloused towards sensuality, undisciplined, especially sexually. It makes us greedy. It gives us this insatiable thirst to practice more sin because unchecked sin always drives us into more sin. So we need to change the way we think about purity and the way to start that, Paul says, to know Christ. Verse 20. To remember how we learned him. To have a relationship with him through things like his word, through prayer, or fellowship with others in the body of Christ. So purity involves change in thinking, but also change in identity. Look at verse 22. He picks up saying, To put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Purity involves all of us as followers of Jesus living out our identity in Christ. It's important that we wear clothes to match the occasion. That's why you dress up, not down, at weddings. Even the people who are like, we're going to have this cool, casual wedding. You ever notice everybody's wearing their nicest, cool, casual stuff? <laughs> Lawyers wear suits in court. Judges wear robes. Young people, maybe you wear a uniform to school or you at least have a dress code. 
You're in school. You can't be in your underwear. Just that's a rule. Sorry. Just a rule. Soldiers wear three types of uniforms to fit the occasion. They have combat uniforms, service uniforms, and dress uniforms. In Christ, you've been given a new set of clothes, so wear the clothes that fit the occasion. And these new clothes are your new identity. So in the Old Testament, a purity system was instituted by God in his law so that a perfectly pure God would be able to dwell with his people. And, as his, and his people then would be able to dwell in the presence of God in the temple. So there are two types of purity and there are two types of impurity. There's ritual impurity and moral impurity and ritual purity and moral purity. Ritual impurity wasn't necessarily sin. So for instance, you have a kid. Childbirth makes you ritually impure. That's not a sin to have a kid. Leviticus 12 says, though, makes you impure. Or attending a funeral. Numbers 19 says, your parent dies and you go to their funeral. That makes you ritually impure. It's not sin, but you could only enter back into God's presence after certain washings. But moral impurity was sin and had dire consequences, such as banishment from God's presence and his people. Other times, your moral impurity required death. It was punishable by death. And even the removal of God's presence from his people. And all of those required sacrifices. Leviticus 4 through 6 says they require sacrifices to be in God's presence. So Israel's identity was reflected by their purity. As God's people, their identity was to be God's pure, holy, righteous people. Therefore, they did everything they could to be holy, clean, pure. Ephesians 2, 20-22 has already told us that God is present in the church. It's already told us that the church is a holy temple in the Lord. Paul already says it's being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in order for God to dwell with us, his church, the body, we must be pure. But due to Adam's sin in the garden, we're all morally impure from conception. And all Moral impurity has dire consequences. Sinful humanity is banished from God's presence. Our sinful nature is punishable by death. Our, and our sin makes us impure. We're impure people, and impure people can't be in the presence of God. And left to our own devices, left to our own hard hearts, we'll remain impure and we'll live in fear and shame of our impurity 
before a pure God. So we need a change in identity. So God took it upon himself. God sent his son Jesus to perfectly maintain purity on your behalf and die for your impurity's consequences. Jesus was banished from God's presence, so you don't have to be. Jesus took on your sin punishable by death so you can have life everlasting. Jesus took on your impurity so you can be pure. Your identity is reflected in your purity. But your purity is Christ's purity. That's your identity. Simply by placing your faith in him, you go from people of impurity. I go as a person of impurity to a person of purity in God's eyes. And what's really interesting, too, we have, a, we have a washing, too, don't we? We're washed by the waters of baptism. And baptism's more powerful than the washing of the Old Testament. It doesn't save us from the consequences of sin. But Israel had to wash repeatedly. But baptism... Paul says in other places, unites us with Christ. We only need to be washed once. And so we no longer need to fear living in impurity before a pure God. It doesn't change our status, but it unites the Christ and his purity when we get baptized. And now we have a new identity in Christ. That's why he uses this clothing language. And that's oftentimes when people get baptized in ancient times, they would actually take off all their clothes and get baptized naked and put on new clothes when they got out of the water. That's not our practice here. Just want to let you know that. Don't worry. So that's your new identity in Christ. And because the Son has set us free indeed, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to keep off our old identity of impurity and instead dress to fit the occasion from now on. Live pure lives consistent with our, our identity of purity in Christ. It's Christ's purity that I now put on. I take off my impurity and put on Christ's purity. And so now when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, perfectly pure. And he says, come into my presence. And that means you're empowered. So listen, you don't have to respond to those calls and texts from your friends that are going to drive you into sin again. You're empowered to say, you know what, man? Can't hang out with you anymore. Well, it might hurt their feelings. They might not want to talk to me anymore. Like, okay. Good. Or maybe they'll repent. Be like, you know what? Evan's trying to get his life together. What's that guy's deal? And maybe they'll hit the same things that I hit and go, you know what? Let me give Evan a call. You're empowered. You have the power to avoid those websites. Those websites that pull you right back in, you don't have to go to them. You do not have to. You can get a filter on your phones, your laptops. I will grab my credit card and I will pay for you. 
But you've got to have the power enough to say, I need help. Because you do have that power. I always encourage that because I don't really trust myself. You have the power to keep your mouth shut when people gossip. You can actually do that. You know that? True. When everybody gets together and they're all talking smack and they're talking crap on somebody else, you know, uh, did my microphone cut out a crap? That was really interesting. <laughs> yes, Lord. <laughs> you, when people are talking poorly about everybody else, you don't have to engage. You can say, excuse me, I'm just going to go to the restroom. Or, hey, guys, uh, i got to be up early tomorrow, so I'm, I'm going to head out. Or if you're a parent, the best thing, if somebody's watching your kids, we all know we do this. Like, you know, i got to get back to the kids. <laughs> God, release the babysitter, you know? We all know what you're doing. It's okay. We're parents, too. But that's who you were. You're different now. You don't have to gossip. You don't have to visit those websites. That's what you used to do. You don't have to do that now because the Holy Spirit has empowered you. So in case we'd want to put on our old clothes, what Paul then does is he gives us five concrete examples of what a pure life in Christ looks like. And then he says, I invite you to change your motivation for purity. And so the first one he says is don't tell lies, but tell the truth. Easier said than done. But look at Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, having, putting, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, motivation for we're members of one another. Falsehood protects you and hurts everyone else. Fellowship in the body of Christ is built on trust, so tell the truth. People might not always like it. You don't have to be a jerk. There's not license to be a jerk. But telling the truth in love, you can do that. He also says, don't nurse anger, but restrict it. Look at verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There are two types of anger, he's saying. Righteous and unrighteous. Righteous anger purifies the body of Christ. Like when we get angry at sin or evil, like God does. It's okay for you to get upset at injustice being done to someone else. It's okay to be angry about that. It's okay to be angry. Listen to me. If you've been really hurt and injustice has been done to you, it is okay to be angry about that because God is angry about sin and evil. But Paul warns us against unrighteous anger. He says you need to restrict it. So it doesn't cross over from righteous to unrighteous. Unrighteous anger nurses anger. Righteous anger restricts it. Unrighteous anger sweats the small stuff. Righteous anger doesn't. Right? Unrighteous anger, when we've been sinned against, harbors resentment. Righteous anger follows Matthew 18 and goes to the person directly. Unrighteous anger holds on. Righteous anger lets go. And you know what's really cool? Oh, maybe it's not cool. It's just something to really think about. You notice the devil lurks around the angry? He's waiting for an opportunity. So Paul's saying restrict anger, restrict the devil. Thirdly, he says don't steal but work so you can be generous. Look at verse 28. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What he's saying is don't sponge off other people. If you receive generosity, be thankful, but don't take advantage of generosity. Instead, work and earn a living so that, you know what your motivation should be? So you can be generous, so you can share your money with people. If that's not changing identity, I don't know what is. He also says, don't use your words for evil, but good. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You can't build the body of Christ if you're tearing it down. So we should use our words to build each other up. Look at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is really interesting. The Holy Spirit is sensitive. The Holy Spirit is sensitive to impurity. The Holy Spirit shrinks back when there's falsehood, unrighteous anger, lack of generosity, and destructive speech in the body of Christ. If we want the Holy Spirit to be in our churches, like Liberty Northeast, we need to make sure we're living our identity, out our identity in Christ. That these things aren't part of our church. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit shrinks back. And lastly, he says, don't be bitter and unkind, but forgive and love like Christ. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, motivation as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, motivation as God loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Bitterness, Paul's saying, don't be someone who's resentful and refuses to be reconciled. We think there's so much power in bitterness that I can hold this over somebody's head. Oftentimes, that means you're losing a lot of sleep about something that the other person you're bitter against is just sleeping like a baby every night. Bitterness says, I don't, I'm refusing to be reconciled with that person. So Paul says, don't do that. Wrath means don't be filled with rage. Oh, is that a reminder for our culture? Don't be filled with rage. Elections coming up, y'all. Don't be filled with rage. Anger means don't be hostile. Clamor, it gives you this idea like in your disagreements, don't be like those people who when they're arguing are just gonna scream louder and louder and louder back and forth and they're just trying to be louder than the other person. Say, so don't, don't do that. Slander, don't speak lies about Christians behind their backs. If we're truth people, people of the truth, we go to that person and actually find out if something is true rather than talking about them behind their backs. So Paul says, rather, be kind to one another. Reflect the goodness and benevolence of God. God's goodness and benevolence does what? It leads us to repentance. Be tenderhearted. He's saying be compassionate toward each other. Forgive one another. One another. He's saying be people of grace. 
Be quick to give forgiveness and quick to receive it because God in Christ forgave you. And sacrificially love other Christians like Christ has loved you. These concrete examples and motivations, what are they all? What are they all? They're all selfless. Because selfishness makes the body impure and tears it down. Selflessness makes it pure and builds it up. So purity starts with each of us. We got, all have to do our own part. But it, so it involves, you've got to change your way of thinking. Allow the truth of Jesus to set you free. Also live out your identity. Change your, in your identity. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, put your faith in Christ now. In a moment, I'll give you time to do that. And then live lives that are consistent with faith in him. And then change it in your motivation. Is your motivation in life selfish or selfless? One looks like Christ in the new life. The other one does not. So can you see how unity and purity go hand in hand, why Paul talks about them back to back? It's impossible to do these things if we're divided. You need other Christians to help you. We must be united for the sake of purity. And impurity is destructive to the body, so we must be pure for the sake of unity.